0: Have you ever thought about what could have been? You sometimes do that in your life because of certain choices that you make or you don't make. And you kind of wonder, what would have happened if I had gone the other direction? There's a lot of things that I can think about in my life that were monumental decision choices that could have led my life to go a completely different direction. As you know, I got my degree uh, in accounting. What would life be like if I was just an accountant? (laughs) Wouldn't be right here, would I? (laughs) And there's a lot of things that you do in life where you kind of wonder, well, what could have been either positively or negatively in the choices that you make? What would have come of those things? One of the things that's really interesting about 2 Kings chapter 3 uh, is it's a really curious text. It's not a text that you're going to find a lot of sermons on. It's a pretty... Curious and difficult text and yet I believe the purpose of it is to take the king of Israel down that very path to show him what could have been what life could have been like if he had made the proper choices now we're told in in second kings chapter three that we have Jehoram as king over Israel he is the son of Ahab though remember he has not been first in line that his brother Ahaziah was actually king for two years as we saw in chapter one, but because he failed to trust in God, the message was given by Elijah that he was not going to recover from his injury after falling through the lattice. Here in chapter three, we now have Jehoram on the throne and what is said about him is somewhat interesting. He's given almost a mixed bag, but not quite. You'll notice that Verse 1 tells us that he reigns in Israel and Samaria for for 12 years. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. For he did put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which had made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So you have an interesting statement about Jehoram. Jehoram, it's almost to say, oh, he's just like the rest. That's how verse two begins. He did what was evil beside the Lord. You're, you're ready to throw the unhappy face on him in the, in the Bible class. But then all of a sudden it says, well, he wasn't as bad as his parents. Actually, he was willing to get rid of the pillar that was to the veils there that Ahab had put up. But then verse three goes, but nevertheless... No, he's really down. And he's just like all the kings of Israel in the past. He did not deal with the sins that reach all the way back to Jeroboam and the false worship that had been set up in Dan and Bethel. And he continues that thing. So the setup here for us, remember, is that then Jehoram is not much of an improvement. He is wicked. And what we have seen in all of the life of Elijah, and now that we are turning the page into the life of Elisha, is that Israel is worthy of judgment. There are no good kings. And that judgment is certain to happen. You might remember that that judgment was supposed to actually come in the days of Ahab, but because of that brief moment in time where Ahab turned his heart back to God, God received that and said, okay, it won't be in Ahab's generation that the dynasty is cut off and it moves to another. It will actually be in the next generation. And so you would think, okay, it's Ahaziah, but Ahaziah dies. And here we are now with Jehoram, and we are waiting for that judgment to happen. Now, what is really interesting is as the scene unfolds, verse 4 tells us that this king of Moab, Mesha, he's a sheep breeder, and they're told that he has to deliver to the king of Israel, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That's quite a tribute. That's an extraordinary. I mean, can you imagine getting 100,000 lambs and then 100,000 rams of wool to take to Israel all this time? it shows the power that Israel has exerted over the region as Ahab was king and the great prosperity that existed in Ahab's reign. However, you'll notice in verse 4, with the death of Ahab and now the death of of Jehoram's brother Ahaziah, Moab says, we're not going to pay this anymore. (laughs) We're we're not going to be under your subjugation. We are now going to rise uh, up against you, and so verse five, he rebels against the king of Israel, and Jehoram then is ready to do something about it. He gathers his troops in Israel, and he is ready to go to battle against Moab. However, he does something that is a little bit interesting. You will notice we're told in verse seven that he sends a message to Jehoshaphat. Now we've seen him a few times; he's the king of Judah, and you might remember that. For whatever reason, Jehoshaphat helped Jehoram's father, Ahab, when Ahab was having problems with Syria. And you might remember as the scene unfolds, Ahab says, you know, let's go to battle. And Jehoshaphat says, we need to ask God about that. And then Ahab trots out all his yes-men prophets. And they all say, oh yeah, rise up, you'll be victorious. And Jehoshaphat's like, we got a real prophet of God around here to figure out what God was. Notice this time... Jehoshaphat receives message in verse seven, where we see Jehoram telling Jehoshaphat, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. The very same answer that Jehoshaphat gave to Ahab, he now gives here. That answer was in 1 Kings 22, verse four. It happens again, but notice the key difference is that Jehoram doesn't say anything about what does God want in regards to the dealings of Moab, and Jehoshaphat doesn't either. And that is pretty striking, because Jehoshaphat, for all of his flaws and curiosities as we read his life as given to us in Scripture, seems at the right moments to want to seek the Lord. And yet in this instance, neither king does that. We have Jehoram saying, let's go deal with Moab, Jehoshaphat says, sure, we're with you. Take our armies and let's go. And so that's exactly what happens. In verse 8, they decide which way are we going to march. They decide they're going to march through the wilderness of Edom. Verse 9 then tells us that when the king of Edom finds out that The king of Judah and the king of Israel have gathered all of their armies to go up against Moab. Edom wants in on that. And they say, "Okay, we'll join you in that. Let's just get three kings and three armies and we're going to go wipe out Moab and let's just take them down. And so they began to wander in the wilderness and make their way supposedly to Moab. But a strange thing happens along the way. We're told there in verse nine that for seven days they're in the middle, middle of this wilderness and they're. Going kind of in circles, it sounds like, and there's no water. There's no water for the kings. There's no water for the armies. There's no water for their animals. You can imagine their horses and all that as is they're prepared to go to battle. Seven days. Seven days they go around Edom trying to find water and they cannot find it. The responses that happen of this are somewhat fascinating. The response of Jehoram, the king of Israel, is particularly fascinating. Verse 10, Jehoram, the king of Israel, says, The Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Basically, God brought us out here to die. I'm... I'm trying to read where Jehoram asked God to go into the wilderness in the first place. I didn't see that. But here is his response. God brought us out here to die, which I would probably state as a parenthetical if I can whisper in Jehoram's ear. You're probably right. Because judgments due to Israel, it was being prolonged to Ahab's descendants and it was time for judgment to come. And curiously, Jehoram says, that's what's happening. He's brought us out here to die and Moab is going to wipe us out and give us, give us into his hand. Look at Jehoshaphat though in verse 11. Jehoshaphat says, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Well, that sounds familiar. He said that back before, with Ahab, before they went to battle Syria. This time, after they've already in the desert, after seven days without water, and Jehoram says, "Well, God brought us out here to die." Jehoshaphat says, "Well, is there a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of?" Little late to the question, but now he says we need to get God's word, and before we get too hard on jehoshaphat here as much as i would like to kind of bring the hammer down on him and go where was that seven days earlier you might have saved yourself a little bit of trouble how often do we do something like that where we seek the lord after the decision is made now it would have been far better if jehoshaphat had raised that question Seven days earlier, before you've gathered all the troops, before you've marched into the wilderness, before you've been going in circles, before you're without water, it would have been far easier to ask God then. But now that they are in trouble, they say, we need to ask God about this. At least Jehoshaphat does. Jehoram just says we're all going to die. And Jehoshaphat says, we need to seek God. And I think this is an important message as it raises up in this moment, is that how often do we encounter circumstances and we make decisions and we go forward with our plans with what we see to be right only to fall into all kinds of trouble and only then do we try to turn to God for rescue. And you kind of look at it When you're a third party and you look at Jehoshaphat and you say, hey, dum-dum, you should have thought about that before you went into battle. But sometimes we miss that for ourselves, don't we? Sometimes we fail to think about asking God for direction and guidance before we've put ourselves into the difficult circumstance. And unfortunately, that's where Jehoshaphat is. Is that at this moment, while they are in deep trouble, while the king of Israel has... His companion says, we're all doomed. The king of Judah says, we need to find a prophet of God. Now, very interesting who pipes in at this moment. Notice then that you see in in verse, uh, verse 11, one of the king of Israel's servants. So just servant of Jehoram, wicked king, says, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Elisha's here and he's been a servant of Elijah. He lives here. And I find it fascinating that Jehoshaphat nor Jehoram know that. But here is a servant of the king of Israel who goes, you know that Elisha guy who was always following around with Elijah? He lives out here. We should go seek him. And Jehoshaphat zeroes in on that in verse 12 and says, The word of the Lord is with him. We need to go to him. We need to find out God's will now because we are in trouble. And so that's what they go about doing. But you will notice what Elisha says in verse 13. I like Elisha. He's He's great. And notice what he he says. So you can imagine, here comes the king, king of Israel, king of Judah, king of Edom, all their armies. We need help. We're about to die in the wilderness. We're kind of throwing out here. We need to find out what God wants. Elisha says in verse 13 to the king of Israel... What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. (laughs) Why are you talking to me now? What do you care? You're going to come seek me now? Now you're going to seek the word of God? Why are you even bothering me? You, You think your prophets of Baal and Asherah and all that are so great? Go ask them. Let them give you an answer. Why are you seeking me? Why even bother asking me? And Elisha is simply implying a very powerful point. The only reason you're here and the only reason you're wanting to talk to God right now is because you're in a jam. And God doesn't work like that. God doesn't work like that. Here he is te- Elisha's telling Jehoram, you might as well go. Why are you here? I got nothing for you. You can just scoot on out of here. God is going to have absolutely nothing to do with Jehoram or with Israel at this point. In fact, that becomes even stronger as curiously Jehoram responds to Elisha in verse 13 and says, it's the Lord that called us three kings who brought us out here to the hand of Moab. I'd like to fact check that. I'm not really sure that's exactly how that went out where the, oh yeah, God called us out here and has now put us in the hands of mobile. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Maybe he has to kill you. Okay. That would be fair. But other than that, we didn't see God saying for them to go do any of this. This is all after the fact, but notice what Elisha says in verse 14, as the Lord of hosts lives, Before whom I stand, were it not for that regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you or see you. Please listen to the end of verse 14. Here's God's message. Jehoram, I don't want to talk to you and I don't want to see you. you Imagine Jehoram's like, hey, I want to know what God says. God says, I don't care. I'm not the genie in the bottle. You don't come and rub the lamp of God and he suddenly gives you answers when you need need to get out of trouble. That's not how God operates. You don't live your life making your decisions, do whatever you want, get yourself in a crisis and think God's going to bail you out. He's not. He's not. That's Elisha's answer to Jehorah. And the implication is That God is going to let Jehoram die in the wilderness. Too bad. I don't want to talk to you or see you. But did you notice something in verse 14? Elijah says, as the Lord lives. Here's this oath that he takes before God. It's that God has regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Is that's the only reason why there's going to be any discussion going forward. Jehoram, if it was you on my doormat, I would just tell you, you can just walk right on out of here. Go talk to your own prophets. Go make your own decisions. Go live your own life. You go do what you're going to do because you don't have a regard for God. And so don't bother. Just go on your merry way, living your life. God's not going to listen to that. But it's a good thing you brought Jehoshaphat with you. Because Jehoshaphat's generally regarded as a righteous king. And in some kind of economy with God, it says God had regard for the king of Judah. And because God had regard for the king of Judah, God is going to respond. God is going to give an answer. And God is going to make some interesting promises. But I think it is so important that we think about as these kings arrive and the premise by which that they are approaching God. That God is able to see through the circumstance. You realize that God can see through us. He can see our motives. He can see our heart. If we treat God like the lucky rabbit's foot that we could just, you know, kind of pull out to save the day, he knows we're doing that. He knows our heart. He knows how we perceive him. He knows the kind of relationship that we have. And to think that we can only have a relationship with God and just come to him in our moments of desperation, but never at any other time in our life and think that God is going to help us. No. And the only reason that there's more that happens after verse 14 (laughs) is because of Jehoshaphat, not because of Jehoram, not because of his decisions. God would have let him die in the wilderness. Now, I think what's interesting is this prophecy. It's a curious prophecy. I don't know a better way to really put it. You'll see why in a minute. The things that God says here are head-scratching. Notice in verse 15 that the musician is called upon to play. The hand of the Lord comes upon Elisha. And here is essentially the message as it's given in verse 16 is that God is going to work an amazing thing. He is going to fill these dry stream beds and valleys with water, but he's not going to do it with wind and rain. They're just going to get full. But then notice what God says next. He says there in verse seventeen: "There's not going to be wind or rain. The stream beds going to be filled, so that you shall drink you your livestock and your animals. Be a ton of water." Verse eighteen: This is a small thing in the sight of God. God says, "You know what? Something like that is way too easy for me to do." Yes, I know we're out here in the desert. I know you haven't been able to find water for seven days. I know you've been traipsing all over the countryside and there is not enough water for you, for your men or for your animals. But here's what I want you to hear about God. It is easy for him to solve that problem. You think about God like that? Imagine if you're in the middle of the desert and there's no water anywhere and God says, I could make full rivers flow through here and that's too easy for me. We would look at a circumstance like that and say, we're all going to die. Seven days without water. We can't get out of this mess. How are we going to possibly, even if it rains, we're in trouble with all of these men. What are we going to do? What about our animals? God says, you think about God like that? You know, it changes your perspective in life. when you think about God who says, you know, I can change things in the world. And that's really easy. (laughs) It's really easy for me to flip circumstances. It's really easy for me to do the impossible. And so I want to show that to you. This is the amazing nature of God, where what God is always doing is saying, I want to show you my glory so that you honor me. And so this is far too easy of a thing for me just to have there to be water for you the next day. Here's what I'm also going to do. Verse 18, I'm also going to give the Moabites into your hand. I'm going to deliver them into your hand. But the rest of the prophecy is strange. Verse 19. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. If you know the law of Moses and you read verse 19. You're reading that and saying that doesn't sound right. And the reason why is God specifically forbid Israel from doing something like that when they came into the land for conquest. Not only were they supposed to avoid Moab and that be left to the descendants. Remember, that's a whole lot thing. And they would have that land. But when you come into the land and you besiege a city for a long time, making war in, it, in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that you should besiege them? Only the trees that you know are, are trees that are not trees for food may you destroy and cut down. So, and you may build siege works against the city and make war with you until it falls. And all throughout Deuteronomy, he says, you don't ruin the water. You don't ruin the, the fruit of the land. You don't wreck the ground. Don't do that. And now God comes along and says, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to deliver Moab into your hand. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to cut down all those choice trees and you're going to wreck all the land and you're going to go against all the fortified cities and you're going to tear all that down. End of Prophecy. Curious. Hold it in your mind. Verse 20. The next morning, about the time of the offering, behold, water came from the direction of Edom until the the country was filled with water. Here is God doing exactly as he promised. Water comes flowing in there enough for everybody to drink. And not only that, there is so much water that fills the land. A strange thing again happens. All the Moabites in verse 21, they all gather together. They're trying to get ready for war. And we're told in verse 22, the way that the sun was shining on the water made it look to them as if it were blood. And the conclusion that they draw... Is that the union of the three kings and their armies disintegrated? They all fought each other overnight, killed one another, and that's their blood running down this river. And so let's go and finish them off and grab the spoils. And of course, they're wrong, because they're going to go running over there and find a ready to fight army and completely wipe out the Moabites. Can I say a parenthetical? When God wants to tell you that water looks like blood, but it's not blood, he'll say that to you. So like when you're in the Exodus and the water turns to blood, it really did. God knows how to tell you when it's an optical illusion, like this one was. It looked like that, but it wasn't. But when God takes water and turns it to blood, that's what happened. That's actually what happened, and so it goes on they all think they're going to win verse 25 they go where you strike in verse 25 they do exactly as the prophecy says they're overthrowing cities every good piece of land. Is put through, A stone is thrown and covered over. They stop all the springs of the water. They fall all the good trees that have fruit on them. Just absolutely doing everything that sounds contra to what they're supposed to be doing, at least based on Deuteronomy. It's again, a curious prophecy. Verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against them, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Now watch this. Verse 27, then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. King of Moab in his desperation and clear defeat as he thinks he's going to be able to overthrow at least flanking the king of Edom and fails with his 700 swordsmen. His final act of desperation is he's in his city and he grabs his son who was supposed to secede him on the throne. And offer him as a burnt offering. And then the final sentence. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. That. causes great questions. (laughs) The king of Moab offers his son on the wall. The wrath of God turns against Israel and Israel goes home. There's been a few answers in trying to figure out, well, how should we understand what just happened here? Because what happened here is the pivot of the whole event. It defines what the teaching point of this section is all about what just happened here what is God doing what just took place sometimes the answer is presented as this is that well the great wrath that comes on Israel is their own personal indignation that they witness the king of Moab offering his son on the wall and they have such indignation and such disdain by what they see they basically lose all of their fight and they go back home I understand why you want to read it that way, but there's a lot of problems with that. First of all, the wrath that's spoken of here is almost always spoken of as divine wrath against wrongdoing. Further, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say Israel would witness something that is so sinful and heinous that that makes them leap. Wouldn't the idea be we need to wipe out Moab altogether because look how sinful they are. Why would this be a point of retreat by offering the sun on the wall? It's not really an answer. Another answer that is presented is, well, the Moabites, when the army saw their king offering the sun on the wall, became so indignant that they then want to rise up and fight and that causes Israel to retreat. And my response to that would be, if God wanted Israel to win against Moab, who cares what the Moabites think about any of this? The Moabite reaction has no bearing upon if God is going to give Israel victory or not. So what? Okay, the Moabites got incensed about all that. Does that mean God couldn't give Israel the victory anymore? No, I think the reading, as almost all the translations have, is the right way to read this. At this moment, God's wrath is now standing against Israel. And Israel now must retreat. And they go back to their homes rather than finishing the work. So let's talk about this in really an application for what we see happening. Let's talk about what's going on. In chapter 3 we have been witnessing the clear identification of the wickedness of Israel. Jehoram's reign, the king of Israel. He is no different than his brother. He's no different than his parents, except for one minor thing. Yeah, he tore down a pillar to Baal, but nevertheless, he is completely wicked. And God has put that declaration upon Israel. That in the next generation after Ahab, Israel is going to lose this dynasty because of Ahab's wickedness, because of Ahaziah's wickedness, and because of Jehoram's wickedness. And that wickedness of Jehoram is so great that Elisha says, I wouldn't even be talking to you right now (laughs) if it wasn't that Jehoshaphat was standing here. I wouldn't see you. I wouldn't meet you. There'd be no conversation. Essentially, I would have let you die out there. But because of the righteous king of Judah, I'm going to allow this to go forward. I think as we begin to try to put these pieces together, it is interesting to see a, a couple of lenses that, that are unfolding here at this moment. As you see God standing against Israel and standing against Jehoram, and yet God is going to give the victory to Jehoram. Have you thought about that? Why not just say, I'll give you water. Go on your merry way. I'm not going to give you victory. You're a useless nation and a worthless king. You're completely wicked. Why is God going to give Jehoram, as a wicked king and a wicked nation, victory? I think there's a couple of things that we're seeing in the text. Number one, as was clearly drawn for us and we talked about, is God obviously is wanting to show his glory. This is too light of a thing for me to have water come out of nowhere and fill these ravines and these stream beds. I want to show you who I am. I want to display my glory and display my greatness. I'm going to show this to you. But why is God going to give Jehoram victory only because of the king of Judah. And I want us to think about a couple of things with this. I believe the big message of what God is trying to show Jehoram and what God is trying to show Israel is the very question I asked you at the beginning of the lesson, where you think about what could have been. And that God here in this moment is showing what could have been for Israel. If Jehoram and the prior kings and the people of Israel cared about God, God has shown repeatedly he would have provided and blessed Israel. He would have protected them. If you remember when God came to um, Jeroboam in saying because of Solomon's sin, These 10 tribes are going to be given to you, Jeroboam. The promises of establishing this dynasty are given to him. That God would be with him. Just bless him. So why is that not happening? Their sins. Have they listened to Elijah? No. And when Elisha comes on the scene, what's the response of the kids in Bethel? Get out of here, Baldy. Get on out of here. Go on up. Follow your master and ascend on out of here. We don't want you. We don't need you as a successor. We don't don't want the word of God around here. We're not interested. And what I'm wanting us to see is I believe the message of this is trying to drive at us that God's wrath is what kept them from victory. Their sins are what blocked them. But God is trying to give them a window to see here's what I could have done for you but I'm not going to do it because the sins of the people and the sins of the king are far too great. And the only reason there's any kind of picture is because of the king of Judah who is giving that. It is so important that we think about what is at stake when it comes to our sins. And I don't know that we always think about the impact of our sins in regards to our relationship with God. Here's the two pictures that I'm getting at. In this scene, we essentially are being symbolized as Israel. And friends, the only reason we can enjoy any of God's blessings or enjoy anything good is because God has regard for the righteous king of Judah, Jesus. It's the only way he can do this. He's not going to look at any of us and go, well, those guys are awesome. We've rebelled. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're all a disaster. We talked about that this morning in our lesson. We need to be freed. We need to be forgiven. We're messes. And here is God saying, but I'm going to work good. But here's the problem. Our sinning interferes with God's blessing. That sounds strange, I know. Because there's nothing that can stop God. If God can do whatever he wants to do, we can't stop his purposes. That's not what I'm indicating. But what I am showing you that I think is being brought out in the text is that what our sinning does is it keeps us from enjoying what God has in store for us. It keeps us from enjoying what all the blessings of God and enjoying a true relationship with God. It keeps us from enjoying everything that God desires to give to us. And that's what Jehoram has missed. He's missed what God is doing. He doesn't care what God is doing. The only way that he looks at God is simply the God of last resort. The God who will bail me out of my jam. Who will get me out of a terrible circumstance. But he doesn't care about a relationship with God. He doesn't care about full life. He doesn't care about victory with God. He doesn't care about the nation of Israel. In terms of what it represents for God and for his glory. He doesn't care about any of that. And we're talking about bold faith. in this series with Elisha. And I'm just going to kind of put this in our own lap. For the final few minutes. And I just want us to think about how much deeper of a relationship we would be able to enjoy with God. If we didn't have our sins interfering. If we didn't have the idols in our lives and in our hearts that kept us from drawing as close to God as he wants us to. And God often tries to show, here's what I have in store for you. Here's what I want to do for you. Here's what I want to accomplish. But that's not going to happen because sins are blocking. Your sinning's in the way. You're treating me like the God of last resort. Because even Jehoshaphat ended up doing that. He finally just says, oh, well, we need to finally look for God. And I want us to think about this because as you think about your relationship and how much more we could be transformed if we would fight against our sins, fight harder against temptations to really seek the Lord, to really draw to him with all of our heart, how much our lives could change in that relationship. Because Jesus ran around saying this over and over and over again. I'm going to put like six of them on the screen just to overwhelm you, but there's a lot more. Simple one. Here's Jesus' words. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's a simple picture of if you're not giving your life to him, you have an interference happening. Your relationship is blocked. The wrath of God remains. Or in John 4, verse 3, or John six. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. Just be honest with that text and think for a minute, which one are you working for? Where do you spend all your time, all your energy, all your concern? No, Jesus is saying, I I, want to give life but you keep spending your days and your time and the things that are in this world. You're caught up in the idols and caught up in the schedules and you're caught up in the stuff. And you're not able to enjoy what I want to give you. Your sins are blocking you. Or John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Do you believe that? Complete satisfaction. If you actually come to him, whoever believes me, never hunger, never thirst, total satisfaction. And he's saying, do you see what I'm trying to give you? What's keeping us from it? Or John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes in to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here's God saying, I want to give you abundant life. That's why I'm here. I want you to have this deep relationship with me. I want you to understand who I am and just be so captured by me that you just enjoy me. That's why Jesus said it in a very controversial way. Here's the last one. And it was extremely controversial when he said it. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. True drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. They, they had a fit when he said that. How are we supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And of course we messed that up and go, that's the Lord's Supper. No, it's not. The picture is your air that you breathe is Jesus. And the food you eat is Jesus. And the drink you drink is Jesus. You are so consumed by God, you are just eating, drinking, and breathing Him. And if that's not what we're doing, the picture here is blessings are blocked. Can't have the relationship that God wants to have with each and every one of us because we have all of these interferences because we have all these things that get in the way, all these things that block it. It's an easy thing to think about. Think about any earthly relationship and then I'll close. Think about any earthly relationship, whether it's a friendship, think about it as a love relationship, like a marriage and imagine if the the bare minimum of time you ever gave into that relationship was just this this teeny little bit, an hour a week maybe. You'll have a great marriage, right? One time, one hour a week. All right, four hours a week you spend in your marriage with, with your spouse, you know, you're going to have great. It's going to be great, right? Wonderful relationship. It is interesting that we come to God like that. And we think, I'm going to spend 160 hours doing whatever I want to do. And between Bible classes, worship, some prayers, maybe I read my Bible eight of the other hours. We're going to have this stellar relationship. 168 hours in the week. I think what God is doing here is saying, I want to show you what could have been. But I'm not going to let you have it. I could have been your victor. I could have been your king. I could have dealt with your enemies. I could have blessed you completely. But God's wrath stood against Israel. And so they stepped into that edge. And then God said, nope, back you go. You're not going to enjoy what I could have given you you would have truly come to me is jesus the air that we breathe is he he our very life that we eat and drink ask yourself some tough questions would you miss reading this Would that bother you would it bother you not to pray for weeks on end would it bother you not to have worship would it bother you not to sing his praises Just ask yourself those kinds of things about what the relationship is for you with God. Is he a God of convenience or is he Lord of all the earth? And God has always said, I need you to step out of the boat. I need you to come to me. I need you to give me your whole life. And if you give me your whole life and not treat me as your backup God, but really truly give your life to me, I can bless you greatly, and great things are in store for you in the hereafter. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for reminding us that we cannot be half-hearted. And Lord, we pray for forgiveness for the times where we have treated you as a God who is only to be consulted in our difficulties rather than seeking a real relationship with you. God, forgive us for how many times we live our lives in a way where we have no regard for your will, for your laws, for your desires. And we just simply choose to do what we want to do. And then we make messes of our lives and ask you to help us. Lord, thank you for sending the ultimate king of Judah in Jesus so that you could have regard for us. We are not worthy of your concern. We do not deserve any mercy. We should certainly be left to die in the wilderness for all of our disregard and for all of our sins and for all our idols. Thank you for your son so that you will listen to our prayers. And Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts. Give us a greater devotion so that we would put away the things that waste our time and keep us from having the relationship that you want us to have. Lord, thank you for being so patient and giving us more time so that we can understand how much we fall short and understand how much you desire to have relationship with us. Help us to seek it and help us to make changes so that we can live it in a way that's pleasing to you in Jesus name. Amen.